Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're talking to JT English about the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture. If you don't know him, JT is the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship in Arvada, Colorado, and the author of Deep Discipleship, How the Church Can Make Whole Disciples of Jesus. He's also the co-host of one of our favorite podcasts, Knowing Faith. JT holds a PhD in Systematic Theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. JT English, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I am so excited to be your under. I've been looking forward to it all week. This is one of those opportunities where, you know how you get to know somebody through a podcast, you see them online, like I'm having that experience with you in real time right now. And I know all the listeners probably feel the same way. So I am super excited just to geek out with you on the topic of God's word, which is something I know we're both really passionate about. Thanks for joining us. Having the same experience. I started listening to your podcast like I think Macy, my wife, introduced it to me, had me listen to an episode. I was like, this is the, I think it was the Michael Haken episode. You guys did an episode on church history like two years ago. And ever since then, I've been a faithful listener of Journey Women. You guys do such a great job. You're resourcing so many people. I was literally just talking to my assistant and she's like, I can't believe you get to talk to Hunter and be on Journey Women. So this is it. And also we've gotten to know each other a bit on social media. So I feel like I'm getting to talk to a friend. Thanks for having me. I could just keep fanboying on and on. <laughs> Brooks, too. I was like, hey, Brooks, I think you need to get in the closet and do this interview. And uh, he was like, I will. And I was like, really? Will you really? And he's like, no, I won't do that. <laughs> Brooks and I need to hang out and do some CrossFit together or something. That's exactly what I was like. What should I geek out about? Should it be CrossFit? Should it be Deep Discipleship? Your book that I'm devouring right now and loving. But alas, we are going to go with God's word. The ultimate I think, authority. I think that one wins. Let's do that. <laughs> Tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. I mean, you are, uh, what do you call yourself? Like a co-host of the Knowing Faith podcast? You're one of three. Yeah, I'm on a podcast called Knowing Faith that's been running for about four or five years now with Jen Wilkin and Kyle Worley. And if I'm honest, that's just one of the most fun things I get to do. We we are surprised that people listen to it. We are like genuinely what you hear on the podcast is what we do when we're like in the car together going to Chick-fil-A back before COVID. Like we just enjoy each other. We love talking theology and the Bible. So we put some mics in front of our mouths while we do it now and just get to have fun doing the podcast. So that's one thing I do. We started that when I was a pastor at the Village Church. So for the last six years, I was a pastor at the Village and oversaw basically adult discipleship and the institute that we started there, training program and Bible studies. But then right before the pandemic, the Lord called me here to, I'm now in Arvada, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Denver's about 10 minutes from here. And I'm a pastor of a lead pastor of a church called Storyline Fellowship. 
Very cool. It's been really neat to watch you guys make that transition. And also my heart goes out having experienced so many transitions myself. Mm. And I know you had such a vibrant community at the Village Church. So I've been watching it on the edge of my seat and it was really fun to read. I guess it wasn't, is it included in the second half of your book, The Transition? Well, here's what's weird. I turned the book in March 1st. I was announced as the pastor on March 15th. And so it was like right right in the middle of all of that. And then March 12th is when the pandemic hit. So that two weeks, whoa! I feel like I lived a decade in about two weeks. It was like, finish your first book, make a pastoral transition, preach in view of a call, have to leave friends. Like it was, it was a lot, you know, and even the topic we're talking about today, just one memory in that season is coming to mind. You know, my first 15, 16 sermons to Storyline Fellowship were all virtual. Wow. I hadn't even met my church yet. I was in a room by myself with a camera and one guy recording me. And I just remember looking down at God's word, preaching through the Psalms. That was my first sermon series here at Storyline. And I just remember having that moment of like, God, if this is not your word, I don't want to do this. Mm. I'd rather go into medical device sales. I'd rather do something else because it's just not worth it. But if this is your word, I'll trust Mm -hmm. it. If I say it into a camera, I don't know who's listening. I don't know if this is going to bless anybody, but I trust that your word does what it says it's going to do. So after having done a PhD in systematic theology and studied specifically biblical authority, it was that moment where like, I felt like I really committed to it where you're like, I believe Mm. this is your word and I'll, I'll preach it and teach it no matter what, as long as you'll allow me. Mm, Bless the Lord. I think the listeners would find it really fascinating because you don't really go into this a whole lot in the Knowing Faith podcast episodes that I've listened to. But just to know that you became a Christian later on in life, based on what I know from you at a distance, I imagine you just absolutely devoured the word and trying to figure out (laughs) what you believed at that period in college. Could you tell them a little bit about that? Absolutely. So a lot of people, when they meet me, they then they kind of learn my background, think, oh, he has a PhD in systematic theology. He must have been an academic his whole life. And that's not true. I got into college on probation. If I'm honest, I cheated my way through high school. Really? Brooks is always like, that guy's brilliant. <laughs> I didn't read a book in high school. I cheated. I cheated the whole way. Wow. You know, I just wanted to play sports. I had a girlfriend. Like it was just, yeah. I was just a pagan, living a pagan life. And I thought I'll go into sales. I'll just, you know, I don't need to know chemistry. I don't need to know algebra. I'll just figure it out. I got into state college on probation. Like you have to try to do that, right? Like I just barely got in. I get in and four weeks in, the Lord saves me. And I, I did share it in the book. We were just talking about it. Just erratically saves me through somebody reading the four spiritual laws to me in the most uncompelling gospel presentation <laughs> in the history of the world. This guy sits down, says, I'm supposed to read this with you. I'm eating a Burger King Whopper and God saves me. Like I have a Whopper in my mouth and I meet Jesus. Like it's just, you can't make this stuff up. That really, really happened. And then immediately after that, I did go from death to life. But the biggest transition in my life was a desire to know God. Yeah. I was just asking friends, what books do I need to read? Like, it was just, that was one of my affections that changed is I want to know my Bible. I want to know God's word. I want to grow in my understanding of him. And so a big part of the book, the heart of the book was I wasn't able to do that in my local church. The local church wasn't committed to growing me. They were committed to keeping me. And so that began my seminary journey. I didn't go to seminary to be an academic. I went to seminary to be a disciple, just to grow in my understanding of God's word. And so I loved my seminary experience. It was so rich. I grew in my love of the Lord, but so thankful to be back in the local church now. And you studied systematic theology in seminary. You did a PhD in systematic theology, correct? I did, yeah. So my THM from Dallas Seminary, I did in church history, historical mm-hmm. theology, cool. and studied Jonathan Edwards. And then my PhD at, at Southern is in systematic theology, specifically on biblical authority. 
one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast in the past is how systematic theology is an approach to studying and looking for what the word says about a specific topic. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important that we understand what the Bible says about the word. That's exactly right. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? This is maybe one of the most important questions that you can begin to think about when you think about what is the Bible? Why can I trust the Bible? What ultimately ultimately is it? And how do, how can I know that it's God's word? One of these answers and the answer that I'm going to give can feel the first time you hear it, it might feel a little less satisfying than you want it to be because the approaches that we're typically given are driven by apologetics. It's driven by like, well, we can trust it because of its reliability or how many sources we have. And those are fine. I think those arguments are, are important. And I think we need to make those arguments for the authenticity of the Bible. But I actually think the best way for us to talk about how can we know that the Bible's God's word is it's a doctrine that Calvin brings out in his Institutes. He calls it the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. What he means by that is, is those of us who are full of the Holy Spirit can simply recognize the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. Why? Because it is also written by the Holy Spirit. Like the first time you hear that, you're like, but that's a circular argument. There's no logic behind it. And my answer is it, it absolutely is a circular argument, just like all arguments are. At some point, you have to know what you're going to trust. And that is a step of faith, whether you're trusting in science, you're trusting in rationalism, you're trusting in reason, your ability to have an intellect, you ultimately are stepping out in faith. And those of us who have faith in Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, realize that the Spirit wrote these words. Like there was never a time in church history where the church just sat down and said, here are the 66 books of the Bible, but rather it was the collective church coming together and recognizing that these are the words of the Spirit. One of the passages that comes to mind to me, although it's not related specifically to God's word, but remember Jesus talking to the disciples and the Bible says that their hearts within them were almost set aflame. That's kind of how I think about the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. We come to it, and those of us who have faith in Christ, we trust in faith that these are the words that God has given to us because they're the Spirit's words. Mm. I'm curious, like, what is the Christian view of revelation? And what are some rival accounts? Because I know there are other religions that might make similar claims. That's right. And most do. I mean, even Islam makes similar claims. So there's a lot of similarity here. So let's even take a step back from, from how do we know. The most important question is, is what does the Bible say about itself? The term that you've used a few times, Hunter, revelation is a really important term to describe. Revelation means, and we should think of it as an action. God is actively doing something in Revelation. He is revealing. Like think of something that is hidden that you and I do not have access to because of our ability to intuit, our ability to have feelings about it, our ability to reason to it. It's something that we don't have access to. And God actively makes himself known in Revelation. And so sometimes, again, we can get so familiar with these categories that As Christians, one of the things that we should highlight the most is that one of the most stunning claims of Christianity is that God has made himself known. Mm. He is under no obligation to, he's under no necessity to, but in his love and in his condescending nature, he makes himself known both in Christ and in scripture. And so that is an act of love. We need to think of Revelation as an act of love of God actively making himself known. You know, Jesus is having a conversation in the Upper Room Discourse in John 17, 1 through 3, and he's ultimately praying to his father. And at the very end, he says this. This is John 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Revelation is our ability 
to know God because of God's action to reveal himself to us. So one of the things that we need to then think about is how, how then do we come to this knowledge? Because one of the things that you just highlighted is there's rival accounts to knowing, like there's other ways of thinking about God and whether it's other religions or even sometimes Christians have have made false is probably too strong of a word, but maybe misguided ways of thinking and knowing about God. So we need to think about what are our trustworthy guides for knowing who God is. In the 18th century, there was a huge shift away from revelation. And I'm, I'm going to simplify some things here, but from revelation to reason. In the Enlightenment, and what maybe you would call it modernity, a lot of scholars began saying, well, revelation is actually the shackles that are holding us back. We don't need to trust God's word anymore. We need to trust our own ability to either progress through reason or through intuition, through our own autonomy. And so when we think about revelation, what we don't want to do as Christians is adopt some enlightenment or modern understandings of what it means to know and apply those back to the Bible. We're making a very simple claim. The Bible claims to be God's word. And in faith, we trust that it is. Wow, that just shows the importance of really wanting to study and understand it as rightly as we possibly can. You know, people say often that this is the inerrant word of God, and we throw that around so much. But what does that actually mean when we're saying like, yes, this is the inerrant word of God? Yeah, inerrancy is, it's almost hard to overstate its importance. About 20 or 30 years ago, if, if listeners are maybe more interested in, in reading something about inerrancy, there was a group of evangelical scholars that got together and they wrote a document called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it puts forward this account of the Bible being true in all that it claims, both positively and negatively about God, about the world, about us. And so inerrancy is saying is that, and this is a kind of an important point, in the original manuscripts, the Bible is completely true. Original manuscripts means that actually what Moses wrote or what Paul wrote or what Matthew wrote that the Bible is entirely free from error. But before we talk about inerrancy, I think one of the things we should do is, is step back because most people are familiar with characteristics of Scripture, things like authority or inerrancy or sufficiency. And all of those things are hugely important, like I just said. But I want to encourage people to think about one category before they think about inerrancy, and it's actually just inspiration, that the Bible itself is God's inspired word. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's the word in, that we get inspired. The Greek term is theophnustos, and it's two Greek terms, actually. It's a, the only time this word occurs in the Greek New Testament, and it's the term God, theos, and pneuma, the term for spirit. And they're kind of slammed together in this one new word. So if, if you're listening right now, go look or, or maybe get on your phone if you're driving or something like that. Don't look later, but look <laughs> at second Timothy three sixteen. This is a hugely important verse for our understanding of God's word. And it says that God's word is breathed out by him. And so it's making, this is kind of a big word, but it's making a, like a, an ontological or a fundamental claim about the nature of the Bible. And it's basically what it's saying is, is that this is the breath of God. This is the speech of God. And it's not just God's former speech. We don't want to think about Revelation only as a record of things in the past, but we want to think about it as God's ongoing communication with his people. So when we yeah. sit down for quiet times, when we sit down in our living rooms, or when you are at church and you get to hear a preacher preach and he's reading God's word, 
what he is saying is God actually speaking to you through these human means, whether it be a preacher or human words written in scripture. And so the fact that the Bible is inspired is kind of the, the way I think about it is like, think about an umbrella. If you lose inspiration, you lose authority. If you lose inspiration, you lose inerrancy. If you lose inspiration, you lose sufficiency. But if the Bible is inspired, Uh then its characteristics match that of its author. And its author is God. And God is authoritative. God is perfect. Therefore, the Bible would be inerrant. God is sufficient. Therefore, his word is sufficient for us. And so anytime you're talking about the characteristics of Scripture, those characteristics really match the character of God because it's God's speech. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I love the picture of the umbrella. You address like one of the questions that I think a lot of people maintain, especially when they see like the little subscript at the bottom of their Bible and it says like, this was not included in the original manuscript. You just start to have this like irking fear, like, oh gosh. Well, what else isn't? (laughs) Yeah. Are there errors that we have in the Bible that we have today? And we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast in the past with the development of the scriptures with Dr. Michael Kruger. Mm -hmm. Oh man, he is so good. Yeah. When someone's holding like the Bible, you know, in the ESV translation, for example, are there errors in that text? That is the right question to ask. I'm, I'm holding I'm holding my Bible right now. Hunter, you can see me holding my Bible. I think with all confidence, we can hold the Bibles that we have and say with full confidence that this is authoritative. This is inerrant. This is sufficient. This is God's word spoken to us, to his church. I actually think one of the reasons we can have that confidence is because of those superscripts or subscripts is because we have so many resources pointing us to what the original manuscript said. And Mm -hmm. we're unashamed of saying, hey, here's where a manuscript is off a little bit, or here's where there's a little bit of an inconsistency or this manuscript says this. Christians have nothing to fear in exploring the inerrancy of the Bible because we have this embarrassingly rich kind of wealth of resources of early manuscripts, not the earliest in terms of the original autographs. That's where Michael Kruger is so good. But there's no other ancient text that we have anywhere near the same amount of number of manuscripts, but yet nobody's scared to trust Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. Nobody's afraid to trust the Odyssey. So we we have these texts that we think, yeah, this is what the author said. We don't have a manuscript within 500 years or 800 years of their life. With the Bible, we're talking about a decade or two and hundreds of manuscripts from those earliest decades. So when you see, for example, the end of Mark or portions of John that that would highlight this isn't in the earliest manuscripts, my suggestion is rather than having a sense of doubt, I think it should increase our confidence that this is God's word because we're, we're being honest about everything we know about the earliest manuscripts. That's just such a helpful way of thinking about it and a helpful way of explaining it. Because I do think, especially with people who are newer to the faith, some of those things can be really challenging to think through when you are deciding like, okay, I really want to rely on this book to mm-hmm. tell me how I ought to think and how I ought to live. Because that's what we claim as Christians, right? That like the Bible is sufficient, like you said. So is it really enough for us to read our Bible to know what God actually wants us to think or do? I think so. The Bible tells us that it is sufficient for life and godliness and that we will be equipped for every good work. That's still the same passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, where 
where Paul is saying that the words that we have here in Scripture are sufficient for us to live lives of godliness and in faith in Christ Jesus. And if, if it's okay with you, I want to maybe tie this question back to a question that you asked earlier about some of these false ways of knowing or, or rival ways of knowing. Because when we begin to believe that the Bible isn't sufficient for us to know God and live lives of, of righteousness in Christ, and I even want to make like a sub point here before I go back to the rival ways of knowing, there are things that the Bible is insufficient for. So when we talk about the sufficiency of the Bible, it is not sufficient to make me a good basketball player because nothing is sufficient to make me a good basketball player, right? <laughs> like there's things that we're, when we talk about the Bible sufficiency, we, it is a pretty narrow claim. It's sufficient for us to know God and live righteous lives in Christ. It's not sufficient for us to learn how to bake a honey-baked ham or how to do a good Thanksgiving turkey. There's knowledge outside the Bible that would be sufficient for. We would say the Bible's insufficient for that. The Bible's sufficient specifically to lead us to Christ, to help us to repent from our sin, lead us to live lives of godliness and righteousness and knowledge of Him. So I don't want people to hear me say it's sufficient, period. It's sufficient for what it was intended to do. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. The three primary rival ways of knowing that I come into contact with, with the people that I pastor or with people that I pastor at the village, and I would say that they're rampant in the church and rampant in evangelicalism, can all be kind of traced back. We were talking about modernity and the Enlightenment can be traced back to that era. The first the first I want to talk about is intuition. Like, it's so easy for us to not trust the Bible, but to actually trust the way that we feel. We want to trust like this internal guttural instinct that I feel a certain way. Therefore, I can trust the feeling that I have. And the Bible says that the heart is deceptive, that the heart is wicked. And that doesn't mean we should deny our feelings. Feelings are important and they should be expressed. But what we end up doing is we end up dismissing the external authority of the Bible for an internal authority, which is the self. What you're going to see is in modernity, all authority shifts from something outside of us to something inside of us. And so the first is feelings. I want to trust my intuition. The second is I see lots of people want to trust their ability to reason that whatever I think or whatever is acceptable to me or whatever I think can be true, therefore must be true. So rather than trusting our hearts, we trust our, our minds to be able to, to know what, what would be true or not. So this is kind of this false story of rationalism. There was a French philosopher named Rene Descartes who came up with a really famous phrase, cogito ergo sum. And it basically means, I think, therefore I am. And again, it it transitioned this external authority, the Bible, of it has to be true because it's God's word to me being the arbiter of truth, because whatever I think either must be true 
or must not be true. So the first is intuition. I trust my feelings. The second is rationalism. I trust my mind. And the third is empiricism. And this is happening at about the same time. If you remember the show Lost, there was a character on there named John Locke. John Locke is the father of empiricism. And that was what his character did on the show of Lost. And he was basically saying, you can trust your experience. Huh. There's even an episode in Lost called Tabula Rasa. And this is John Locke's famous phrase is that we're all blank slates. You give people the same experience and they will come to the same conclusion. In my experience, again, there's three false ways of knowing or rival ways of knowledge in their intuition, rationalism, or experience. And those can be summed up by saying, I feel, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. Or I experience, therefore I am. And those are rival ways of knowing mm-hmm. God. God says, the way you come to know me is by me speaking to you. It's God's speech, therefore we know. And we don't want to deny our feelings. We don't want to deny our intellect or to deny our experience. But those things are subcategories in relationship to God's spoken word to us. Yeah, it's incredible to see that and how it's pervaded even people who would claim to be Christian and content that is out there for us to intake. And so that's a really helpful way for us to be able to discern, okay, like on the surface, it might appear to be somewhat Christian, maybe just because they're saying they're Christian, but for us to help differentiate between when you see someone who's really like committed to submitting themselves to the authority of the word of God, because I see so many people who are claiming to be Christian teaching women to think uh, and, and to say, and then that their reality will change. I know. Yep. That's just not biblical. Or even think about like the young man or the young woman who's under an unbelievable amount of shame and guilt for a previous sin. Uh-huh. And that's believing, I feel, therefore it's true. That's kind of this false story of knowing that we would call intuition or feelings. But they are in Christ. They have been bought with the blood of Jesus. They've died with him and raised to new life. The reason biblical authority matters is because the Bible does speak a better word over them that isn't shame and guilt, but is righteousness. And so, again, that isn't meant, that doesn't mean that we should deny those feelings or we shouldn't seek to, to bring healing to those feelings. But if you're feeling, let's just say you're feeling guilt and doubt, the Bible speaks a more authoritative, inerrant word over you that says, no, 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 you're seated in heaven with Christ. You're in union with him and you have been forgiven. Or maybe you struggle with the false story of rationalism. I think, therefore I am. And you struggle with doubt. Well, that's okay because there's place for doubt in faith. But the Bible says that one day the faith, our faith is going to be made sight, which is great news. Or, or maybe you're not experiencing this abundant, rich life in Christ. The Bible says that one day you're going to reign and rule with him forever. So biblical authority matters, not just because we want to talk to atheists or secularists and try to prove that the Bible is true, but because so many Christians also struggle with false ways of knowing, and the Bible speaks a better word of righteousness in Christ over their lives. Man, I love that. And I love to, you know, when we were talking about kind of the other revelations, when we know our Bibles, we're able to offer that better word to one another. Mm -hmm. Encouragement, because I think a lot of times people will say to each other, like, I have a revelation for you, or I have this word for you. And if we submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God, and we're continually studying the word, then we're able to offer each other a truly better word, God's word. Amen. And you think about like the in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, the Bible talks about people who had words 
that didn't come true or that weren't true. And the Bible calls them false prophets. And so I think it's really important for us to be in tune with the Spirit. And Hunter, you and I are friends. And if there was something I felt like the Lord had laid on my heart to say, hey, I, I, you know, Hunter, I think I want to encourage you in this, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't say, I have a word from God for you. That's creating revelation. That's a category of God's speech. That, And I know that when Christians do that, they often don't do it intentionally to equate their speech. But we need to think about those categories carefully, that there's only one word of God, and it's Scripture, the 66 canonical books from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the Spirit brings you know, things to mind, and he might want me to encourage you or say something to my son a certain way and say, hey, buddy, I, I know you're struggling to say, I want you to know the Lord loves you, the Lord sees you. But I know that that's to be true because that's what the Bible says about him. Yeah. How does the Holy Spirit help us to receive and to respond to the Word of God? Oh, man, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I know that sometimes these conversations can be a little technical. I want to make this as least technical as I can. But we just talked about the doctrine of inspiration. Remember, that's the umbrella doctrine over all of every category in the Bible, authority, inerrancy, sufficiency, canonicity. It's God's word. Therefore, it's these things. So inspiration is the the, kind of the first major peg. The second one is illumination. That's the question you're asking right now is not only did God, the Holy Spirit, inspire his word, but God, the Holy Spirit now illumines his word. The way Calvin talks about this in the Institutes is he says, the Holy Spirit, I'm paraphrasing, this isn't an exact quote, but he basically says, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire the word only to abandon it to give you a different word, but rather, and that's kind of what we were just talking about. Rather, the Holy Spirit now illumines our hearts and minds in order to know the Bible better. And so this kind of can get a little interesting, but like I would argue a pagan, though they can read the words on the text, hmm. they can't get to the meaning of the text the way that you and I can because we're full of the Holy Spirit. We are in need of the Holy Spirit to illumine and reveal the truth about God to us as we read the Bible. Now, what what does he use to do that? He uses the Bible. There's this reciprocal relationship between a non-Christian opening to John and, and reading about God and the same Holy Spirit who inspired. That's where he meets us as we read to illumine. Yeah, that's really cool. I've always heard the importance of using God's word when you are evangelizing because faith comes from hearing and hearing from Amen. the word of God. And I love that because I'm actually in relationship with a lot of people here in New England by God's grace where we're just doing that hard work of digging into the text together. How does better understanding God's word impact those relationships where we are coming to the text and digging in together? How does God's word impact our discipleship relationships? Oh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because we as disciples of Jesus never graduate from God's word. It's just fundamentally impossible. We never get to a place where you're like, I've mastered that. I now I'm going to move on to the next thing. Now we might master a Jen Wilkin Bible study, or we might master a, you know, whatever it might be. Like you, you go through the study and you're done with it. With God's word, that never happens. And that's why Jen loves doing Bible studies is because she yeah. knows that. She knows that if I keep bringing people back to the word, Martin Luther says it this way. He says, the Bible is shallow enough for the smallest of infants to play in it, but it's also deep enough for a hippopotamus to play. And he's just using a metaphor to say, you can go as deep as you want in this thing. One of my favorite images in the Bible is from Habakkuk 2.14. The prophet Habakkuk is prophesying to Israel and he says, one day 
the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth the way water covers the sea. I was reading that once and it struck me. I was like, that is a weird word picture. What does it even mean for water to cover the sea? And then what does it mean for the knowledge of God to cover his creation that way? And I thought, oh my gosh, it means it's never ending because God is never ending. If God is a never ending well, think of a water well of perfection, of beauty, of goodness, of glory, of majesty, of weightiness, and it never ends. Like it just keeps going. And the Bible is the primary way way he makes himself known. Then the Bible is that too. Like the Bible is this inexhaustible well that whether you have preached on John 3, 16, a thousand times, you still have something to learn from John 3, 16. Mm. And so as churches, you know, I've only been a pastor here now for nine months and I already feel like I'm repeating myself every week. I'm like, I'm saying the same thing. And I realize <laughs> I have to like preach myself. And that's what faithfulness is. Say the same thing over and over and over and over and say it for 50 years because we never learn enough about the beauty of God in scripture. Mm, that's really good. I love that you mentioned your local church because I know the whole content of your book, Deep Discipleship, is really restoring discipleship to the local church, which I think is so fabulous. That's one of our big soapboxes here at Journey Women is that we would always be pointing women back to the local church because we want women to know that's where you're going to receive true nourishment. And that's where people are going to see your back foot and come alongside you and show you what it looks like to walk in righteousness. What's the value in seeking out discipleship in the local church context. Oh man, you're hitting Hunter. I'm so, I love all of these topics. You're just like, <laughs> you're like I, know, I feel like I'm doing all of these questions injustice because I want to just talk about it for like five hours with you. But as you know, Hunter, this is part of my story. I come to faith and get largely discipled in a nonprofit environment, which was like, I, I, it was wonderful. That's not a criticism, but I wasn't discipled in my church. I went to my church to be discipled and I, and they basically said, Oh, if you want to grow, you need to go to seminary. Again, I had a wonderful experience in seminary, but a question that I continually asked myself through seminary was, why do so many people have to leave the local church in order to grow? I just hate that that's the case. I'm trying to commit my life to just my small little local church. How do I help make disciples here? And the reason I think that discipleship in the local church is fundamentally different than anything, any other environment, whether that's seminary or Bible college or a podcast or a nonprofit, all things which are good, like don't hear me in any way diminishing those. It's just they have a different place in our lives than the local church does. And this is key. It's because the local church is a fundamentally different type of family. So much of our discipleship is actually kind of a spiritual orphanage. Like when I go to Dallas Seminary or Southern Seminary, I'm not there making sure that my brother or sister that's sitting next to me is growing as much as I am. I'm there because I want to grow. I'm there because I paid money for the systematic theology class and I need to take notes and pass the test so that I can leave. But in the context of the local church, like let me give an example from my time at the village. We had this training program. And in this training program, we had guys who had finished their THMs and guys who had never been in a learning environment around discipleship in their life. We had women who were in PhD programs and women who were just starting off. And like I, They're just wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, terrified to open their Bibles, you know. And one of the things we would talk about is the most important thing that the local church can do for discipleship is create an environment of charity where the other person's growth matters as much as yours does, because that's what should be true in a family. Like if Hunter, if you and I were in the same local church, 
I want to be as passionate about you growing in your knowledge and love of God as I am about me growing in my love and knowledge of God. And that's what should happen in the church. So for example, if we were teaching through John in the training program, there might be somebody who's asking a really nerdy seminary question. Like, can you tell me more about the Greek term monogenes and what that means? And in a seminary environment, you might have the newer person think to themselves, why does this even matter? I'm here to learn. I'm here for me. But in the local church, you can create an environment that says, I am so glad my older brother is learning. I want to celebrate him. I want to cheer him on. I want to exhort him to continue growing. And then the opposite can be true. If maybe you're the more mature believer in the local church, but you're watching a brand new, maybe this person was a pagan two weeks ago, and they're just like soaking all this up. They're learning and growing. And they ask a simple question. And in a seminary or a Bible study, you might feel like it's a waste of time. You're like, I'm paying money to be here and I'm here to grow myself. But in the church, you see that person as your brother and sister, and you get to say, I am so glad that you're learning. I'm so glad that you're growing because you are brothers and sisters. The New Testament tells us, and sometimes I hate using the term brothers and sisters because it almost gets overused. Like, okay, brother, okay, sister. But the Bible means it in a fundamental sense. Like it tells us that we have a closer blood connection through Jesus than our actual families. And the local church is the only environment where that's true, where we are passionate about the growth of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and spiritual siblings together as we're growing in Christ. You know, when you see a brother or sister in your local church who's not as interested in God's word, or if you yourself feel that way, like Mm -hmm. what do you do in coming alongside each other and really helping each other treasure God's word as we ought? The first thing I think I want to say is it's okay. Like sometimes there's just seasons where it's okay. You almost have to go through those dry spells to enjoy the rich seasons where you're just diving into God's word. So the last thing I want somebody to hear from me is that isn't God awesome and the Bible's great. And if you aren't enjoying it as much as I am, you're somehow less of a disciple. Like if you're just struggling to open God's word because of doubt or because of it suffering in your life, God still loves you. And God still sees you and you're not meriting anything by loving the Bible more or by loving him more. Like his affection for you does not change based upon the quality of your Bible study. He just loves you like you're in union with Christ and you're not going to change that by how well you know your Bible or if you don't know your Bible. You are saved by grace and by grace alone and you'll be persevered by grace and grace alone. But it's that message that when we begin to soak in that message of grace and grace alone, then, oh my goodness, I want to know this God better. It's not so that he'll love me, but because he loves me that I want to spend more time in scripture. Mm -hmm. That is such a good encouragement. So if somebody wants to specifically study a little bit more about some of the things that you talked about, like the inspired word of God, the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency of scripture, where would you point them? Honestly, I think one of the best documents, and it's a really simple one, is that Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. You Google it right now. It's not a book. It's like it's like maybe 2,000 words of just really rich evangelical doctrine on what, what the Bible actually is. Um, in terms of maybe more contemporary stuff, J.I. Packer has a book on the authority of God's word. I'm forgetting the exact name of it right now, but if you just Amazon J.I. Packer, you know, authority of God's word, anything by, if you just Google J.I. Packer and he has a book, (laughs) buy it because it's good. It's good. You know, there's another one that came out that I'm actually going to show you, Hunter. I think I actually have it right. It's right around here. It's actually right behind me. 
This is a book. It's a little expensive. It's called Thy Word is Still Truth, Essential Writings on the Doctrine of Scripture from the Reformation until today. This was a really good resource for me when I was writing my dissertation because, I mean, it's everything from Herman Bovink to the Westminster Catechism to Francis Turretin to Calvin. So if you're looking for more of like some historical rich stuff, uh-huh. so it's not like this is not the kind of book that you would read front to back. It's more of like the resource book that if you are interested in having 50 resources at your disposal in one book, it's called Thy Word is Still Truth, and it's a fantastic book. You have me on the brink of purchasing a really expensive Bovink book. Why do you not do it, Hunter? I mean, we can make this happen right now. <laughs> I will say you did influence me and I bought the one on the incarnation. Okay. But that was a little bit more accessible. That was under $10. So let me show you one other one. This is a, a friend sent this to me. He it just randomly, this is Bovink's book called The Wonderful Works of God. And it is called Magnolia Day. And it's a first edition Dutch copy. What? So I, uh, I'm geeking out over that right now. Awesome. That is so wonderful. Well, clearly you have lots of simple joys when it comes to <laughs> God's word. We traditionally ask this question, like, what are your three simple joys? And I really want to know those two. But since we're talking about the word of God, I thought it would be fun to hear what are three of your simple joys when it comes to either preaching, teaching, or studying God's word? Oh, man, that is such a good question. Three simple joys when I'm reading, preaching, or teaching God's word. The first is when we're singing God's word, I, this this is going to like out me a little bit. When we sing God's word, I weep. Like I, I weep like a baby and I, yeah. I get that outs me as like, but I also cried extreme home makeover. So like, I'm, I'm just kind of a little bit of a softy, I guess. This past week at Storyline Arvada, we were singing, I will wait for you. It's, it's Shane and Shane's song based on Psalm 130. And just in the season of Advent of waiting on the Lord, like I was just a sobbing mess and I'm like, how am I going to go preach right now? You know? Yeah. And again, it goes back to that illumination. The Lord just illumines his word and sets our affections aflame for Christ when we get to sing. That's number one. The second, and I'll, I'll go faster on these next one, is just seeing light bulbs go off for people. I remember being intimidated by God's word and not knowing where to go. And so to create an environment where you can ask any question you want, that it's okay to be a beginner on this journey. You don't have to feel intimidated and to see somebody say like, oh, that's what Jesus meant or that's what Paul meant or understanding the storyline of scripture in the Old Testament. Like there's just nothing better for a preacher. That second one was kind of more maybe related to the intellect, but just seeing people love God more. Like now that I'm getting to be a pastor and for six years now, like seeing people grow in their affections because of what the Holy Spirit's doing in their life, man, you just can't beat that. Who has had the greatest impact on the way that you understand God's word? This is an easy question. My wife, without a shadow of a doubt. I've had some of the best seminary professors in the world that I could give shout outs to, but my wife was the first person who I ever saw reading a Bible. And then I saw living her Bible. She wow. she has taught me more about God than anybody else. And she does it quietly. She does it faithfully. She, and I don't mean quietly in a good sense. I just mean like she just is, she's not trying to be a teacher. She's just trying to follow the Lord. She's just a faithful, faithful woman. She's suffered a lot in her life, in her family. And she had a, a disease a few years ago that was pretty scary. And watching her suffer well and place her faith just wholly on the sovereignty of God in that season, I'll never learn a better lesson about Jesus than my wife teaches me. Oh, well, give Macy a hug for all of us. Yeah, she's the best and she loves you. 
fabulous. I really hope I get to meet her one day. And I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for your work. You know, I love the local church so much. I love everybody that I get to learn from in my local church. But it's also such a joy when I'm cleaning and when I'm just going about the daily tasks that I have as a mom to get to pop in knowing faith or to get to read your book in the evening. It was just really affirming to be able to read some of the the concepts in your book. And I highly encourage everybody to go and check it out. So thanks for making yourself accessible to us through this conversation today and more broadly, just via the interwebs. It's been a joy to get to have you. Hunter, this has been a highlight for me. Just a joy. So honored to be with you. Hope that the Lord continues to bless you in your ministry. Pray that this conversation with JT stirs your heart's desire to know and love God through his word and that it offers you some helpful categories to consider as you continue learning and growing in your knowledge of the scriptures. If you're looking for more thoughtful conversations on the Bible and theology, be sure to check out the podcast that JT co-hosts along with Jen Wilkin and Kyle Worley called Knowing Faith. It's one of my faves. You can find all the information on this week's episode, as well as past episodes on Bible study on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We're so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Oh,